Matthew 27, if you have a Bible. The title of this morning's message is this. Christ is risen in glory. So we can be happy, holy, and full of hope. Come on. That's a good one. That's a good title, man. Just kidding, but you know, it is for real. Christ is risen in glory. We can be happy, holy, and full of hope. We'll figure out what that means in this message. So we're just going to start out by reading one of the resurrection accounts from Matthew, but we'll start with the end of the cross. So uh, Matthew 27, starting in verse 50. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that is, died, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And now chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, that is after the Jewish Sabbath, so this is Sunday morning, the first Easter. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garments were white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified, but he is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Lord, yes, amen. We say amen to that. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious truth. Thank you, Lord, for this historical happening of your wonderful resurrection from the dead, by which we have the forgiveness of sins and new life, through which the power of death and the power of sin and the power of the enemy have been broken, and through which we have the wonderful hope of future glory with you, where you will restore all things, and we will be with you forever in paradise. We thank you for these things that are actually beyond comprehension. But we ask that this morning, Lord, you would help us to comprehend these things. We're all in different places in our journeys here. Some of us are very familiar with these truths. For some of us, it'll be brand new. We ask that you would give us understanding. We know, God, that you care for us. You proved it by giving your son on the cross for us. And so speak to us today. I would ask humbly that you would use me for your glory, that I would preach in a way that is faithful to your word and fruitful for your purposes. And you'd bless us all as we hear and radically impact our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when we read that, it's clear that something radical happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Something that was literally earth-shaking. Something that was frightening 
and glorious and astounding, something that was altogether unprecedented and something that had an unprecedented effect on that little city. Jerusalem wasn't much bigger than Carpinteria at the time of Jesus. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we saw in that city thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus. On this basis, Peter and the apostles were preaching in that little town of Jerusalem a risen Jesus. They were preaching that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and on the third day he rose from the dead. And they preached that he had risen from the dead to give validity to everything that he claimed to be doing and to who he claimed to be, the only unique son of God and the savior of the world. Now, when they preached Christ's resurrection from the dead, they were doing that in the same town where he was buried. So anybody who had misgivings about that claim or or thought it to be untrue could merely walk over to the grave where he was buried and see whether he was there or not. And the fact of history is the grave was empty. And every person since then has to deal with the reality of the empty tomb. For a body has never been found. A body has never been sighted. A body has never been reported. No plausible alternative has ever been put forth. But the grave was empty on that first Easter morning. And so the inhabitants of Jerusalem then, when Peter and the boys were preaching a risen Christ, his work on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, really had very little choice but to believe. For they themselves could see that the tomb was empty. And many of them had seen the risen Lord. And it was clear that he wasn't merely resuscitated. This was no resuscitation. It wasn't reincarnation. He didn't come back as another person in another form. It was a resurrection in glory. It was evident that death had been defeated. That though Christ had momentarily gone into the grave, when he was risen from the dead, death was put in the grave. It was evident to all, to the many who saw him, something unprecedented. Literally earth-shaking and subsequently earth-changing had happened in Jerusalem that day. And so thousands of lives were changed. All that they had known before in Judaism, the sacrifices in the temple and the various holy days and all these things, they left that behind to follow the one who had clearly given validity to his claim, which is, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody's coming to the Father except through me. Man, it, it changed the world. And we are evidence of that fact, that the world has been changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because here we are, 2,000 years later, all dressed up in our Sunday best, sitting here together in this stuffy little room, talking about it. If a body had been found, we never would be here 2,000 years later. If he hadn't been seen as risen in glory by many, we would never be here in this room now. If things were not radically changed then, if the earth hadn't truly been shaken by Christ's resurrection from the dead, then 2,000 years later, there wouldn't be millions upon millions of followers of Jesus Christ. You see, when we look at the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts and all the changed lives... Here in Carpentry, it only makes sense. We have very little choice but to believe that Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. 
And all then that is left is to ask this morning, well, what does it really mean? Yes, clearly he's risen from the dead and we're gathered here, but what does it really mean that Christ is risen from the dead? And that's what I want to talk about now. Christ's resurrection from the dead means that we can be happy because our sins are forgiven. Christ's resurrection from the dead means that we can be holy because the power of sin has been broken through his cross and resurrection. And Christ's resurrection from the dead means that we can be hopeful because if Christ is risen, he's coming again to set right everything that has ever gone wrong. All of these things are truly good news in light of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now let's talk about them. My first argument is that we can be happy, truly happy, because through Jesus we have the forgiveness of sins. It would have been one thing if Jesus died on the cross and stayed dead. You know, ultimately then, his death on the cross would not have meant much because many died on the cross. In fact, two thieves died on very similar crosses there on the same hill with him that day. What separated Jesus from the thousands and thousands of other people that had been crucified at the hands of the Roman Empire? Why does his death on a cross mean that he paid the price for our sins? Certainly others in history before him claimed to be some sort of savior. And certainly others since him have claimed to be a savior. But what sets Jesus apart is he's the only one ever to predict and pull off his own resurrection from the dead. Therefore, we can be confident that when he claimed to be paying the price for our sins on the cross, that truly then we can have forgiveness of sins through faith in him. And this means that we can have true happiness. Look at what the psalmist wrote in anticipation of this. Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. What joy for the disobedient person. You know, the scripture declares that we have all been disobedient. None of us have obeyed God the way that we should. What joy For those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Scripture says that we all have sin. Every single one of us. You see, we have a proclivity to want to grade on a curve, don't we? Because we live in a culture of comparison. And if I compare myself to another and I can find someone who's not doing as well as me, then I'm doing well by definition of comparison. And I feel good about my status and my situation and my possibilities. The bad news is, God doesn't grade on a curve. Leave that verse up there, please. God doesn't grade on a curve. God has a set standard. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, Scripture declares. What joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. Oh, no. Record, that's a dirty word. 
Did you know that every one of us before God has a rap sheet? We've all got a record. It's called elsewhere in Scripture, certificate of debt. We're told multiple times in Scripture that he really does keep a record of our sins against him. I mean, we wouldn't expect anything less. He is, after all, a holy God, a righteous God. He's not a corrupt judge who will turn a blind eye. He's not a jovial, senile grandpa who will just kind of chuckle at our sin. He is a holy, righteous God. And if he's going to maintain holiness and righteousness, then he has to maintain a record of wrongs that are done against his character and his standard. Otherwise, he's fudging the books. He's not a crooked accountant. He's a holy and righteous God. And all of us have a rap sheet, a record. What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Now, it's clear from the phrases that come before that honesty doesn't mean that we're living necessarily rightly because we've already seen here that there's disobedience, there's sin, and there's a dirty record that incurs guilt for us through which we've incurred guilt. So to live honesty means this, and in honesty means this, to recognize that I'm a sinner who is in desperate need of a savior. To recognize that I don't cut it in and of myself when I stand before God on the day that I die. I need someone who has gone before me. Someone who has paid the price on my behalf. Someone else to clear my record. Because not only does God not grade on a scale, but God also doesn't grade with balances. So it's not as though we have uh, uh, all these bad things heaped up and if we could just heap up enough good stuff on the other side, the scales will balance and we'll stand before God and he'll kind of, you know, move the weights a little bit and say, okay, looks like you made it. It balances out. It's not the way it works. It's not the way that sin works. A right does not undo a wrong. It's not the way that it works in God's economy. So to live with honesty, the joyful life is to recognize I'm not going to cut it in the judgment, but Jesus was judged in my place on the cross. And so look what Jesus said in John 5, 24. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Jesus is the one who saves us from the judgment, the righteous wrath, the righteous reckoning of God. And it's only through Jesus. Well, what about other ways? What about other possibilities? What about the good stuff I've done? No, no, no. Go back to Jerusalem now. Jesus is the only one to predict and pull off his own own resurrection from the dead. Therefore, he is the only one in whose words we can have complete absolute, utter trust and assurance. He says, I'm the one who saves you from judgment. First Thessalonians says, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, there's that proof, he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. Now look what Colossians says about these truths. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised. Now, 
Paul here is speaking to Jews. Circumcision was a big deal with the Jews. It was a sign of their relationship with God, their covenant relationship. And Paul here is going to be talking about how Jesus fulfilled that. That was just a sign, fulfilled that in a different way. When you came to Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. That part of us that was given to sin, ruled by sin, condemned by the righteousness of God. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. Baptism speaks of our identification with Christ. To put your faith in Jesus is to identify with what he's done for us. It's to be joined with him by faith in his work. So that when we are baptized, it's a symbol of the fact that through faith we've been buried in Christ. In other words, just as Christ died, we have in a very real way died with him by faith. It was not only Christ who was nailed to the cross that day, but we, our old nature, our sin with him. And with him, then, also, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins. Speaking of spiritual death, it's worse than physical death. Spiritually dead, not able to have a relationship with God. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. There's that record we were talking about. There's the record that God has kept. Look what God did in his love for us. In the person of Christ, it was nailed to the cross. So that when Jesus said, it is finished, what that literally meant in the Greek was paid in full. The record, the debt that had been incurred, paid in full by Christ's work upon the cross. In this way, here's more good news. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, Satan and demons. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you. Oh my goodness, this is good news. So don't let anyone condemn you. Jesus Christ paid the full price for our sins upon the cross. When we put our faith in him, when we trust fully in what he's done for us and not anything we could do or failed to do, when we identify with him through faith, then we and that record died there with him and we have been risen to new life and in that new life, we are declared righteous before God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says. So don't let anybody condemn you. You know who condemns us most often? Ourselves. Good job. Ourselves. It's such a travesty when we hold against ourselves what God refuses to hold against us because Christ paid for it. It's so unfaithful to the cross. It's so unfair to what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It's so theologically inept. It's so damaging. It's so wrong when we condemn ourselves continually when once we've gone to the cross for forgiveness. 
First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let nobody, including yourself, condemn you anymore. You know, the second party that wants to condemn us the most, who's that? Satan. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He roars accusations at us. And you know, most of the time he's right. Britt, you did this, and you did that, and then you did this, and the other, and you did all those things. And he's right. I did them all. And if Christ hadn't paid for them, I would stand guilty and condemned. But Christ has paid for them all. That's why, once again, we can read with the psalmist, oh, what joy, happiness. There's a holier word scripture uses. How blessed is the person, blessed. It's not, it's not circumstantial happiness. It's not a fleeting thing. It's this blessed state. Oh, 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 how blessed is the person whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty, saying, yes, I'm guilty, but I have one who has paid it all for me. See, and all of that is made valid in Christ's resurrection from the dead, his physical resurrection and glory. And so we now have available to us true happiness. True happiness. You know, there's a lot of challenges to our seeming happiness in this world. A lot of challenges. My daughter died of cancer last year. That's, that's been a tough one for me, my family. Many people in our church who have had family members die just this week. People in our church who have been diagnosed with horrible diseases, divorce, abuse, all sorts of brokenness, financial ruin and loss, betrayal by those close to us, lack of material things, dreams that never came true. Places we'll never get to go. There's, there's a lot of things that would seemingly challenge our happiness. But you know what we learn in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that those things aren't ultimate. None of them ever shook the earth. Only Christ and his resurrection from the dead. All those other things that seem to be such great hurdles to our happiness present such challenges seemingly to our well-being. None of them are ultimate. Christ's resurrection from the dead shows us that what, what is ultimate is the forgiveness that we have in him. It is paid in full. So then, we have a happiness that transcends circumstances. We have a happiness that transcends betrayal. It transcends financial ruin. It transcends failure. It transcends broken dreams. It transcends the death of loved ones. It transcends physical ruin. Because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, we have true happiness. Oh, what joy. Then there are other many things in the world that would sort of promise happiness. There's all sorts of offers of happiness. I recently got a new truck. I am so happy about it. <laughs> a big four-wheel drive truck. 
I'm so happy about it. All sorts of things that would make promises of happiness. You know, we look for happiness in relationships. Oh, I got, I got a new girlfriend. Not me. I, obviously not. <laughs> Married for many years. Just had a new baby girl. It's a hypothetical. You meet someone, you're excited. Oh, I'm so happy about this relationship. I'm so happy about this financial gain. I'm so happy about this clean checkup. I'm so happy about this new shiny thing. But none of them are ultimate. None of them. Christ's resurrection from the dead and the forgiveness that we have of sins because of it are ultimate. We have a happiness that the world can't promise. It doesn't come through trucks or boys or girls or relationships or marriage or anything else. Christ's resurrection from the dead. We have truer, ultimate happiness. Christians, let me speak to you. This ought to work in us a revival of joy. If Christ is truly risen, then we should be truly joyful. What is required on occasion is that we coach our own hearts. We encourage ourselves in the Lord. We encourage ourselves with this gospel. We remind ourselves of what is ultimate, what is glorious, and what is wonderful, and what's been done for us by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we maximize that in our hearts and minds. We set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, not on the temporal passing things of this world. There ought to be a revival of joy in our midst in this Easter season because Christ is risen. And when we're struggling with that joy, when there's all those challenges to our happiness, we we remind ourselves of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we say, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose record of guilt has been cleared. Oh, what joy. For those of you that aren't Christians, you know what Scripture would argue, and I don't mean to insult you with this, but Scripture would argue that until you know Christ, you've never known true joy. Because you've always carried with you the burden of guilt. We're slow to admit it. We don't want to admit it. Every one of us has a certain fear of judgment. We all know deep within us, no matter how many ideologies and philosophies and false theologies we try to cover it up with, we all know that there's coming a day of reckoning. We can all look and see the results of our bad decisions, our bad choices. We can look around and see from disease and death and evil and murder and all these other things that sin is real and that it's a true problem. And we sense that problem is not external, it's also internal. And it will forbid you from ever knowing true joy until you come to Jesus Christ in faith, who is the source of all that is true. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The only way to be in that song, oh, what joy, is to come to Jesus. But there is more good news in light of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And that's this, that our today doesn't need to look like our past. That's good news. Fomre, you're with me on this. Anybody got a past here? Anybody have a past here? Listen, some of you, I was born and raised in carpentry. I've known many of you for 40 years. You know, homeboy's got a past. Huh? Anybody got a past here? Our past has been forgiven if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. 
Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. I've already said that. But there's good news. We are not destined to repeat the past. Our present does not have to look like the past. Here's the next point. We can actually be holy because Jesus has broken the power of sin. Now, in one, in one way, we are truly, at this moment, if we're Christians, holy. Our standing before God is that we've been made holy through our identification with Christ. Remember, our old record was done away with. Our new record before God, the record according to which he deals with us, is Christ's own record, who was the Holy One, who was altogether righteous. His record has become our record. So our standing before God is in grace. We stand before him blameless. We are positionally holy. Look at Colossians 1, up on the screen here. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, us, who were once far away from God. We were his enemies, separated from him by our evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled us to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Continues. As a result, okay, as a result, he has brought us into his own presence. And we are holy and blameless as we stand before him without a single fault. Now that is, pause right there, that is the wonder of justification. Because we know that we are not blameless and without fault. If you've been awake for more than four seconds today, you know that is not the case. But remember, we have been identified with Christ who died in our record with him. And we have been raised to new life and have been given a new record, the righteousness of God. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. That's the crux. These things are received by faith. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the gospel, the good news. Don't drift from it. Stop condemning yourself. Stop letting the enemy condemn you. Stop going under the yoke of religion and the law. Stay in that place of Christ's record for you where you stand righteous before the Father, holy without a single fault. Man, that's good news. And so we have a brand new identity, a core identity, where once we were enemies of God and sinners, now we are friends of God and saints. People think saints means, or something, that it's something that has to do with character. It doesn't have to do with character in the Bible. It has to do with position. Position given to us by Christ before God. Holy ones of God. A core change of identity. But the goal of Christian life and the promise of the resurrection is that we begin to live out of that new identity as a beloved of God, having been made holy, sons and daughters of God. And so Romans 6, 4 says, And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now, now, we also may live new lives. New lives. You see, what the Christian doesn't believe in is cheap grace. We don't look at those glorious truths of the cross that we just talked about, be flooded with the forgiveness, wash white as snow, and then just say, now I'm just going to go on living like I was. That's not what we do. That's not the truth of the gospel. 
We have new life. We've been raised to a new kind of existence through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So look at what Romans 6 says in verse 9 now. Since we have been united with Jesus in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might, here's the salient point, so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead. Go back to Jerusalem because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. When he died, when he, died he died once to break the power of sin. It continues. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also. Here's how we ought to live in response to the cross and the resurrection. So you also should consider yourselves by faith to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do not let sin control the way that you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument for evil to serve sin. Instead, okay, here's new life, new way of being, new existence. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So, use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. The resurrection of the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we can be truly happy because our sins have been forgiven. But it also means that we can be holy because the power of sin has been broken. And we are new creations in Christ. Scripture says, behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. So we can actually live holy lives, not only positionally, but practically. We live in a different way. According to the same power that rose Christ from the dead, the power of the Holy Spirit. We can live in a different way. The good news is our present doesn't have to be like our past. Now, if we were going to be honest, it's a tremendous struggle, isn't it? We all struggle with sin. And that's why so many people look at Christians and say, you are hypocrites. Now, what they're saying is you don't live in the way that you ought to live in light of who you claim to follow. Ouch. Now, in one way, they, they are so right. I, I would have to confess, there's not enough holiness in my life. And I'd have, I'd have to confess as a member of the church that it doesn't look enough like Jesus. But I'm, 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 I'm gonna have to say that I don't think it's a matter of hypocrisy. You see, hypocrisy is pretending. Now, let's not get caught in that church. Hypocrisy is pretending comes from a Greek word, the Greek word for an actor. 
It's to pretend. Remember all the joy of those who live in complete honesty. Honesty begins with saying, I am a sinner. Honesty continues by saying, and I continue to sin, but I have a savior who has forgiven me and who is changing me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I have new light. If you're going to do it, do it. So we actually can live differently because Jesus has broken the power of sin, both as it pertains to our identity as sinner and as it pertains to the way that we live as slaves to sin. What this ought to do for the Christian, this wonderful truth, is revive us. Revive me by your word, the psalmist wrote, Psalm 119. These glorious truths need to be sunk into the heart, preach to ourselves over here, and revive us. You know what the church needs? And the non-believers here will agree, the church needs a revival in holiness. We need the Holy Spirit of God to revive us to want to look more like Jesus, to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, to live out the implications of the gospel, to show to the world what the resurrected Christ looks like by living resurrected lives now. They can't go back to Jerusalem. They can't see him resurrected 2,000 years ago. You know where the world sees the resurrection? In the life of the Christian. You know where they fail to see the resurrection? In the life of the Christian. We need to be revived, according to this text from Romans, that we have new life. Sin is no longer our master. We should live for the glory of God and stop living for the glory of ourselves. This is the good news of the resurrection. And this is also good news for the non-believer who's aware of that weight of sin and all that stuff from the past. And it haunts you at night. And it haunts you when you think about the future and the day of judgment. But you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your past will be dealt with and your present will begin to change as you follow Jesus. That's what he does. He changes lives. That's why we're here 2,000 years later because so many lives were changed in Jerusalem after his resurrection. Oh, but there's more good news. Not only can our today be different from our past, but our future will be very different from today. The final point, we can be hopeful or full of hope because Jesus will undo the effects of sin. Now we all confess that even though we have new life and a new identity, we still struggle with sin. Do you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us that there is coming a day where we will no longer struggle with sin? That we will also one day be resurrected in glory with him? That we will have new bodies that are not susceptible to sin or temptation in any way? In fact, there will be no sin or temptation present because the devil will be thrown in the lake of fire and there he will be tormented forever. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that we will not always have to struggle with sin. And more good news, the world will not always struggle under the effects of sin and the evil that we see today. There's coming a time where there won't be any more disappearing planes. There won't be any more overturned ferries full of kids. There won't be any genocide over there. There won't be any corruption here. It's 
coming a day where eight-year-old little girls will not die of cancer anymore because Christ is risen. We know for sure that he is coming again. And when he comes again, there will be a day of reckoning and everything that has gone so wrong will come untrue in the presence of Christ. Isaiah the prophet spoke of this and said, God will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. In that day, people will proclaim, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. You see, there's wonderful hope again. As Jesus has risen, Jesus is coming again. This is part of Christian doctrine. This is what scripture says. And that he will restore all things. And we have this hope. Now, it's not the kind of hope where we say like, oh, I hope there's surf this week or I hope I get that promotion or I hope there's pizza for lunch or whatever it is. It's not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is sure expectation based on Christ's resurrection. Biblical hope is sure expectation based on Christ's resurrection. Go back to Jerusalem. Just as he was risen from the dead, we know that he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will restore all things. And so Peter wrote and said, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now... We live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, speaking of heaven now, an inheritance that is kept for you in heaven, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, until he comes again, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. You know what this ought to do for the Christian? It ought to revive us again. Be truly glad, even though life is hard right now. God knows life is hard. Scripture told us life would be hard. Jesus told us there'd be days like this. He said, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we ought to live with holy hope, holy expectation that Christ will redeem and restore all things one day. And so we live differently. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. We don't weep in the same way that we do weep. We're not thoroughly overwhelmed when we see evil and tyranny in the world and injustice. We fight against it on every front. But we know that there is coming a day of reckoning, a great day of reversal, another dawn as there was that first Easter morning where all the dark is pulled away and in the light we see that he is risen indeed. This ought to revive the Christian to live in a joyful manner. You know what it does for the non-Christian? It makes you think, wow, so maybe this life isn't meaningless. Maybe it's not 
all for nothing. Maybe it's not just all in a horrible course spiraling downward. Maybe it's not all going into chaos. But it also helps you to realize, and maybe it's not just going to get better on its own. Maybe we, humanity, are never going to solve all the problems of the world. That's what modernism promised. It hasn't delivered. Only Christ, who is risen, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, can ever be powerful enough to set right everything that has gone wrong. And when he returns to settle accounts and establish his kingdom, he will do just that. So the non-Christian ought to say, I want a part of that. I don't want to miss that. That's where faith in Jesus Christ comes in. Put your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Look at the promise of Isaiah again. You will live in joy and peace. Speaking of that day when Christ returns. The mountains and the hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands where once there were thorns. What are thorns a symbol of? The fall, right? Remember the fall of man? The first part of the curse was thorns came forth from the earth. Isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ had by those who crucified him a crown of thorns put upon his head. He took upon himself the curse. Broke it at the cross. Abolished it at the resurrection. So when he comes again, no more thorns. And all that they symbolize, cypress trees will grow instead. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and his love. Sin and death and destruction, all the results and the effects of sin, have been defeated and will truly one day be abolished. And this day is nearer than we think. Look what it says in the New Testament epistles. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. When the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die, right? A unit fit for eternity. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God. He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Amen. So Christians, we need to ask ourselves, are are we being strong and immovable, always working enthusiastically for the Lord? Are, Are we living out the implications of the resurrection? Are we being consonant, faithful to what Christ has done? Are we setting our minds on the things above where Christ is and the new life that we have in him and being continually revived with this truth? letting our past be settled at the cross, pursuing holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in the coming kingdom as we see the troubles of the world.
What this means for the not yet Christian is, what do you want for your present life? Do you want new life? It's in Christ. And what will you do with your past sins? If you want them to be cleared, it's in Christ. And what do you dream of for your future? You don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the future. I never would have guessed a decade ago that this is what life would look like. Nobody knows except one. Jesus knows. Jesus said in Revelation, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Christians, let your heart be revived by these glorious truths and live for his glory. If you're not a Christian, all you need to do is say, Jesus, I realize that I've sinned against you. I understand now that you paid the price for my sins on the cross. I believe that. I trust that. Save me. And you will be saved. You will be forgiven. And you will be called to follow Jesus. Your past will be covered. Your present will begin to change. And your future will be secure. This is good news. This is Easter. Thank you, God, for these glorious truths. They brought us such joy this morning. We, we pray for our friends who are here who don't know you yet. We're asking that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would put their faith, Christ, in what you've done, and they would receive much joy this Easter morning through the forgiveness of sins. Pray for those of us here that are Christians. You help us to live faithfully to these things. Thank you that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. God, my sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Thank you, Lord. We rejoice in these things.